And first, we acknowledge that we gather here today in God's country. For the earth and everything in it belongs to him. And we also acknowledge that we are meeting on the traditional unceded territories of the Squamish Nation, a people rich in history, language, and culture, long living here in this most beautiful part of Turtle Island, Canada, God's country. We're wrapping up our series today, learning from the stories of our Indigenous friends. Preteens, you can head off to your time now if you'd like. This topic for Missions Month has provided a venue for some important processing and much emotion. I've had many, many people telling me stories, some of how you've been mistreated by Indigenous people in your life, some of you who struggle with the topic of some of Canada's other peoples and their special treatment in our country, perceived. Youth and young adults in our church community, I know it is difficult to reconcile the Christian faith that you're growing up with and rightfully testing or exploring the merits of with the messages that are bombarding you at school. For Western Christianity carries with it some heavy baggage. Spiritual abuse in the name of Christian mission. Power-wielding through colonialism. And cultural genocide, just to name some of it. So we've been attempting to put some of these historical actions of the Christian church in our country under the microscope of God's word, which I believe suggests rather clearly that the Christian story actually expresses itself uniquely in all cultures. At the launch of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper issued this apology in the House of Commons on June 11th, 2008. The objectives of the Indian Residential School were based on the assumption aboriginal cultures and spiritual beliefs were inferior and unequal. Indeed, some thought, as it was infamously said, to kill the Indian in the child. Today, we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. Yet, we have our heads in the sand if we think racism, subtle or otherwise, doesn't still exist in some form today in our country. Our mini-documentary bore that out. And this week, I sat down with a young indigenous man from our church community, and he shared with me a dark story. Just last Sunday, he was walking home from work on Lonsdale, And a gentleman confronted him, yelling obscenities and shouting, Get back on the reserve, you effing Indian. And sadly, my indigenous friend told me, This is something I've had to deal with in North Van my whole life. So we come today to Revelation chapter 5. I invite you to turn there now, or you can fire it up on your electronic device. It's page 1918 in the fat blue Bibles. It's page 994 in the medium fat blue Bibles. And it's 863 in the other Bibles that I found up in the balcony there in a few of the pew racks. 
But first, let me set the context for this passage. Lifelong Jew, friend of Jesus, part of the Lord's senior leadership team, longtime pastor now because of his leadership in a movement considered a threat to the Roman Empire, John the Apostle finds himself exiled to the prison island of Patmos off the west coast of modern-day Turkey. He's cut off from the rest of the world and from his beloved congregation. And here, John receives from God a number of vivid and wild visions. And he writes what he sees in the form of apocalyptic literature. Revelation glimpses into the future meant to encourage Christ's followers to radical obedience in Jesus in the present as persecution mounts. Let's read Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because, Jesus, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign On the earth. We're going to fast forward now to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to put it on the big screen. I'd like us all to stand. And we're going to read this, these two verses together. Let's go to the next slide. Here it is. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Remain standing for prayer. So God, here we are. And we want to thank you for your word, written thousands of years ago that's living and active and powerful and applicable to our lives here today. God, I ask that you come now and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your Spirit. God, we pray that 
today through the message of your word that you would be shaping our hearts, fixing our eyes, and changing our attitudes to be aligned with how you see us and the world. God, we ask that you would come now and speak to us, for we are hungry to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. God's justice is a primary theme of the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, the Apostle John is witness to a future scene in heaven's throne room, the eternal courtroom, if you will, where all cosmic affairs are to be settled. Jesus is there, though at first his presence is hidden from view. All humanity is on trial before their creator in this epic drama. And a mighty angel proclaims, who is worthy to open the scroll and atone for humanity? And John weeps and weeps, for at first scan around the room, no one is qualified. For John knows that before God, no woman or man can ever stand alone on their own merits. An elder speaks up with the good news. No need to weep, Johnny boy. The Lion of Judah has triumphed, and he will take the scroll. I love the upside-down nature of the Christian story. When John takes a look-see, that lion is a lamb, and a slain lamb at that, whose cross wounds are still visible. God does not triumph wielding the power of a lion, but he triumphs in the humble sacrifice of a lamb. And this lamb has become the center of everything. He's Jesus, God the Son, whose perfect sacrifice on the cross covers all of our sins. And this Jesus is the only one worthy to represent, to defend, and save humanity. This is why the faithful fall down and worship the Lord. For with his shed blood, Jesus purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Redemption for all. Significant, this phrase appears in similar form seven times in Revelation. Every tribe and language and people and nation. The idea that God's invitation of salvation through his son Jesus is not limited to a specific culture, race, or nation, but extends to all would have been challenging for the Apostle John, a lifelong Jew. What we're really seeing here is the fulfillment in eternity of God's ancient covenant promise. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. But you know, it doesn't end there. God continues. And you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here's the thing. God chose Israel so that through Israel, from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, God, through Jesus the Son, could bless the entire world and rescue, bring, gather, all nations back to himself. The truth is, no culture 
has a permanent claim on the gospel. Multiculturalism is not a fad or the invention of theological or political liberals. It's wired right into the Christian story. Being a Christ follower never gives us permission to look down our noses at anyone. It also should never keep us from not sharing the blessing of God with others, from hoarding it for ourselves. Like one commentator puts it, this is our mission, not to bend others to our will or worldview or way of living or to profit from them for our gain, but to be a blessing to all nations. God blesses people for one specific reason, to be a blessing to others. So when the people of God are not being a blessing to their neighbor, to their enemy, to the nations, they're not acting as God would have them act. A few dream sequences later in chapter 7, John's in the midst of an epic worship service. A great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language are worshiping the Lamb, their Savior, Jesus. Back in chapter 5, we saw 24 elders, Christian representatives from around the globe, leading every creature in heaven and on earth And with all that is in them, they sing a new song of vociferous worship. And if you've never been part of a worship service, not in your first culture or language, you really need to for several reasons. One, it focuses you away from, I don't like that tune. I don't like those words. That leader's style doesn't do it for me. And it puts you onto true worship. Second, you need to experience worship not in your first culture because encountering God's presence outside the comfort of your own comfort zone stretches your worldview in a good way. Thirdly, you need to experience worship outside of your first culture because wonderful spiritual and relational bonds can be formed when we worship Jesus with other believers in their native language. I've experienced this. Jumping into a spontaneous worship conga line in Cuba. In the sweet singing and dancing circles of children in Zambia. And in the freewheeling, loud singing worship of our North Shore Iranian church that meets here every Sunday afternoon. The perfume smells great. (laughs) Beyond the words and the music and the dance moves, which are all foreign to me, These powerful worship experiences have deeply widened my understanding of God and his world and shown me how big God is. Do you know he's not just my God? Thankfully. Well, it's time to land the plane now on a few application points. First is this. Cultures matter. Culture is precious to all of us. It's why ancestry is such a big business these days. Can you imagine going your whole life not knowing your own culture? I've been reading the book Raised Somewhere Else. It's a dark and painful book written by a 60s scoop survivor. Between the 1960s and 80s, 60s scoop was a systematic act of the government in concert with Canada's churches to place indigenous children into white European homes to assimilate them. And Colleen Cardinal recounts her story and the story of many of Canada's indigenous peoples. 
She says, I began to understand how loss of identity as indigenous people had benefited the state and how easily it gained access to our land and resources. When assimilated indigenous people become consumed with being Canadians and performing as mainstream consumers, they no longer care about their lands, their people, or their languages. And she concludes, if we don't reclaim our culture, relearn our languages, and practice our ceremonies, we are complicit with the state. Tough words. For those of us who are settlers here on Turtle Island, Canada, there are some hard lessons to learn from the dark past. We mustn't ignore it, but we also can't allow our past to immobilize us either. In the book of Revelation, there is strong evidence for an eternal kaleidoscope of culture wired by God into the human race. Culture really matters. You want to go to the next slide, Lucy? Daryl Johnson comments, In Revelation, God gathers up within God the full range of the world's ethnic diversity. No one ethnic grouping can bear or manifest the full image of God. It takes all of us. Every culture uniquely reflects God's image. Put another way, every culture expresses a unique aspect of the image of God. Even when confronted with Jesus himself in person in eternity, humanity will not simply be absorbed or swallowed up or assimilated. Cultures matter to God. And therefore, all cultures must be respected by and matter to God's people. Second, the practice of reciprocity. You can go to the next slide, Lucy. I had the joy of leading our North Shore Alliance Church missions team to Cuba in 2018. Each day our women helped Gaylene, longtime Alliance missionary, run a conference. Well, the men, six of us, worked construction at the National Ministry Center. On the work site, language and culture barriers, different building methods, and the heat made it tough. But those weren't the biggest obstacles we faced in Cuba. Sadly, due to the perception of cultural superiority, the local guys were at first very timid, constantly deferring to us, and building was not going well until the Lord made a breakthrough. The turning point, here it is. You got to listen carefully. Here was the turning point. When they knew that we knew that they knew we were useless without them. Shall I say that again? Here's the turning point. When they knew that we knew that they knew we were useless without them. That swung it. And the Cuban guys became our bosses and taught us how to build their way. And a sweet brotherhood in Christ began to blossom between us. The boys shared their stories with us and we were deeply impacted. Some like Hiani and Juan and Eddie are still in touch today. And the construction went way better after that. In her sermon here last week, Jen Singh said, one thing I have learned as a settler 
is how to receive from those I think I have gone to serve. Reciprocity. And today I must testify how much I've been blessed by and how much I've learned from and received from many of my coffee time friends over the years. Guys like 60s Scoop Survivors David Craig and the late Phil Marsh, who a few years back spent every day for two weeks at our mill house, rental house, lending their time, expertise, and energy before we moved in to make that house livable for me and my family. My coffee time friends have taught me about my own mental health, about poverty, pain, and how to cling to Jesus. And I am grateful. Third, the ceilings people live under. Here in Revelation, in the highest scenes of the Christian story, we see no ceilings on anyone. And this would have rocked John's Jewish worldview. Sure, in the first century, the apostle had witnessed Gentiles converting to Christianity, but this vision of Jesus being worshipped in eternity by people from absolutely everywhere would have blown his mind. Honest assessment reveals that we in Western society still place many ceilings on people that box them in, evidenced by our snap judgments based on appearance, our profiling, our microaggression, as Jen mentioned last Sunday night. Microaggression is a term for our stereotypical ways of thinking that manifest into those offhand comments we make that prompt discrimination. Often unintentional or second nature, these insults can cause great harm, particularly to marginalized people groups, and propagate the unfair ceilings many in our country feel forced to live under. We heard about this ceiling in Brian's story back in week one. Brian said, as an indigenous person, I thought being drunk was an acceptable way to be. I thought that's what people expect of me. And Colleen Cardinal shares in her book, I thought this was how my life was meant to be, a broke Indian living on welfare just like the stereotype. And so, to those among us today who've ever felt forced to live under a ceiling, or ever been victims of microaggression. To indigenous people, women, immigrants, non-Caucasians, people on income assistance or disability, addicts, the homeless, we are sorry. For this is dead wrong and not the way of Christ. For the Christian story confronts microaggression head on. In Genesis 3:27, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I wonder, Christ followers at North Shore Alliance Church, what if we ask the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, 
to change up the lens through which we view other people. Lately, I've been asking Jesus to help me see people as he sees them. I believe this is part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that he wants to do in his followers. Instead of judging without knowing, Spirit of God, we invite you to give us a fresh set of eyes for other people that reflect the loving heart of God and free people from those ceilings they're living under. And finally, to wrap Missions Month, on correcting Christian mission. The Christian story in its purest forms is meant to be both fluid and dynamic. This was and is God's plan. Translated into the Greco-Roman culture and transported on Roman roads from its inception in the first century to just over two and a half centuries later, the early church grew from a movement of just a few people to five million people. Christianity grew rapidly, in part because it gave dignity and a fresh sense of belonging in community to all races and classes of people, and because it was uniquely translatable into every language and culture. It still is. We're seeing a massive shift in global missions in our lifetime. While the Christian church in the so-called first world shrinks, cross-cultural missionaries from so-called lesser-developed third-nation countries where much of Christianity's worldwide growth is happening are now coming to Canada to do missions work. And frankly, we need their help. So, just what is the role of the Western church and missionary? Are we even able to go into cross-cultural situations without that air of cultural superiority? I believe Christ followers everywhere are still called to go. For leaving behind one's first culture and venturing into another remains part of the mission heart of God. From Abraham to Jesus, who left behind all the comforts of heaven, his first culture, to come to earth to rescue us. But how we go must be right. We must go respectfully, like Jesus, who put on our skin, who took on our language and culture to express the love of the Creator in a way all humanity could truly understand. In his book, From Every Tribe and Nation, church historian Mark Knoll writes this, When the work of Christ is finished, his kingdom will be made up of people from everywhere, speaking all imaginable languages, shaped by greatly different historical experiences, representing every conceivable social location, and appearing as a rainbow of red and yellow, black and white. The God of the Christian story is for all nations and calls people from all nations. And he urges us to join together in one voice to worship the only one in the universe worthy of praise for eternity. Jesus our Savior. Amen. As the team comes now, I invite us to stand together and let's worship Jesus.